0: Book 1 Introduction and Chapter 1 of The History of Henry Esmond Esquire by William Makepeace Thackeray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. The History of Henry Esmond Esquire by William Makepeace Thackeray. Book 1 Introduction the early youth of Henry Esmond, up to the time of his leaving Trinity College in Cambridge. The actors in the old tragedies, as we read, piped their iambics to a tune, speaking from under a mask, and wearing stilts and a great headdress. T'was thought the dignity of the tragic muse required these appurtenances, and that she was not to move except to a measure and cadence. So Queen Medea slew her children to a slow music, and King Agameminum perished in a dying fall, to use Mr. Dryden's words, the chorus standing by in a set attitude, and rhythmically and decorously bewailing the fates of those great crowned persons. The muse of history hath encumbered herself with ceremony as well as her sister of the theatre. She too wears the mask and the cotornus, and speaks to measure. She too, in our age, busies herself with the affairs only of kings, waiting on them obsequiously and stately as if she were but a mistress of court ceremonies and had nothing to do with the registering of the affairs of the common people i have seen in his very old age and decrepitude the old french king louis the fourteenth the type and model of kinghood who never moved but to measure who lived and died according to the laws of his court-martial persisting in enacting through life the part of hero and divested of poetry This was but a little wrinkled old man, pockmarked, and with a great periwig and red heels to make him look tall, a hero for a book, if you like, or for a brass statue, or a painted ceiling, a god in a Roman shape, but what more than a man for Madame Maintenon, or the barber who shaved him, or Monsieur Fagon, his surgeon? I wonder shall history ever pull off her periwig and cease to be court-ridden? shall we see something of france and england besides versailles and windsor i saw queen anne at the latter place tearing down the park slopes after her stag hounds and driving her one horse chase a hot red-faced woman not in the least resembling that statue of her which turns its stone back upon st paul's and faces the coaches struggling up ludgate hill she was neither better bred nor wiser than you and me though we knelt to hand her a letter or wash-hand basin why shall history go on kneeling to the end of time i am for having her rise up off her knees and take a natural posture not to be for ever performing cringes and congees like a court chamberlain and shuffling backwards out of doors in the presence of the sovereign in a word i would have history familiar rather than heroic and think that mr hogarth and mr fielding will give our children a much better idea of the manners of the present age in england than the court gazette and the newspapers which we get thence there was a german officer of Webb's, to whom we used to joke and of whom a story whereof i myself was the author was got to be believed in the army he was the eldest son of the hereditary grand bootjack of the empire and the heir to that honour of which his ancestors had been very proud having been kicked for twenty generations by one imperial foot as they drew the boot from the other i have heard that the old lord castlewood of bar to whose family these present volumes are a chronicle though he came of quite as good blood as the Stuarts whom he served and who as regards mere lineage are no better than a dozen english and scottish houses i could name was prouder of his post about the court than of his ancestral honours, and valued his dignity as the lord of the batteries and the groom of the king's posset so highly that he cheerfully ruined himself for the thankless and thriftless race who bestowed it. He pawned his plate for King Charles the First, mortgaged his property for the same cause, and lost the greater part of it by fines and sequestration, stood a siege of his castle by Ayrton, where his brother Thomas capitulated, afterwards making terms with the commonwealth for which the elder brother never forgave him and where his second brother edward who had embraced the ecclesiastical profession was slain on castlewood tower being engaged there both as preacher and artilleryman this resolute old loyalist who was with the king whilst his house was thus being battered down escaped abroad with his only son then a boy to return and take a part in worcester fight on that fatal field eustace esmond was killed and Castlewood fled from it once more into exile, and henceforward, and after the Restoration, never was away from the court of the monarch, for whose return we offer thanks in the prayer book, who sold his country, and took who took bribes of the French king. What spectacle is more august than that of a great king in exile? Who is more worthy of respect than a brave man in misfortune? Mr Addison has painted such a figure in his noble piece of Cato, but suppose fugitive Cato fuddling himself at the tavern with a wench on each knee, a dozen faithful and tipsy companions of defeat, and the landlord calling out for his bill, and the dignity of misfortune is straightway lost. The historical muse turns away shame-faced from the vulgar scene and closes the door, on which the exile's unpaid drink is scored up, upon him and his pots and his pipes, and the tavern chorus which he and his friends are singing. Such a man as Charles should have had an Ostade or Myris to paint him. Your Nellers and Lebruns only deal in clumsy and impossible allegories. It hath always seemed to me blasphemy to claim Olympus for such a wine-drabble divinity as that. About the king's followers, the Viscount Castlewood, often of his son, ruined by his fidelity, bearing many wounds and marks of bravery, old and in exile, his kinsmen, I suppose, should be silent nor if this patriarch fell down in his cups call fire upon him and fetch passers-by to laugh at his red face and white hairs what does a stream rush out of a mountain free and pure to roll through fair pastures to feed and throw out bright tributaries and to end in a village gutter lives that have noble commencements have often no better endings it is not without a kind of awe and reverence that an observer should speculate upon such careers as he traces the course of them. I have seen too much of success in life to take off my hat and hussah to it, as it passes in its gilt coach, and would do my little part with my neighbours on foot, that they should not gape with too much wonder, nor applaud too loudly. Is it the Lord Mayor going in state to mince pies and the mansion-house? Is it poor Jack of Newgate's procession, with the sheriff and javelin men conducting him on his last journey to Tyburn, I look into my heart and think that I sin as good as my lord mayor and know I am as bad as tyburn jack give me a chain and a red gown and a pudding before me and I could play the part of alderman very well and sentence jack after dinner starve me keep me from books and honest people educate me to love dice gin and pleasure and put me on hounslow heath with a purse before me and I will take it and I shall be deservedly hanged say you wishing to put an end to this prosing. I don't say no. I can't but accept the world as I find it, including rope's end, as long as it is in fashion. End of introduction Chapter 1 An account of the family of of Castlewood Hall When Francis, 4th Viscount Castlewood, came to his title, and presently after to take possession of his house of Castlewood, County Hants, in the year 1691, Almost the only tenant of the place besides the domestics was a lad of twelve years of age, of whom no one seemed to take any note till my lady viscountess lighted upon him, going over the house with the housekeeper on the day of her arrival. The boy was in the room known as the book room or yellow gallery, where the portraits of the family used to hang, that fine piece amongst others of Sir Antonio Van Dyck of George, second viscount, and that by Mr Dobson of my lord the third viscount, just deceased which it seems his lady and widow did not think fit to carry away, when she sent for and carried off to her house at Chelsea near to London, the picture of herself by Sir Peter Lely, in which her ladyship was represented as a huntress of Diana's court. The new and fair lady of Castlewood found a sad, lonely little occupant of this gallery busy over his great book, which he laid down when he was aware that the stranger was at hand, and, knowing who that person must be, the lad stood up and bowed before her, performing a shy obeisance to the mistress of his house. She stretched out her hand. Indeed, when was it that that hand would not stretch out to do an act of kindness, or to protect grief and ill-fortune? And this is our kinsman, she said. And what is your name, kinsman? My name is Henry Esmond, said the lad, looking up at her in a sort of delight and wonder, for she had come upon him as a deacerte, and appeared the most charming object he had ever looked on her golden hair was shining in the gold of the sun her complexion was of a dazzling bloom her lips smiling and her eyes beaming with a kindness which made harry esmond's heart to beat with surprise his name is henry esmond sure enough my lady says mrs worksop the housekeeper an old tyrant whom henry esmond plagued more than he hated and the old gentlewoman looked significantly towards the late lord's picture as it is now in the family noble and severe-looking his hand on his sword, and his order on his cloak, which he had had from the Emperor during the war on the Danube against the Turk. Seeing the great and undeniable likeness between this portrait and the lad, the new Viscountess, who had still hold of the boy's hand as she looked at the picture, blushed and dropped the hand quickly, and walked down the gallery, followed by Mrs. Worksop. When the lady came back, Harry Esmond stood exactly in the same spot, and with his hand as it had fallen when he dropped it on his black coat, her heart melted i suppose indeed she hath since owned as much at the notion that she should do anything unkind to any mortal great or small for when she returned she had sent away the housekeeper upon an errand by the door at the farther end of the gallery and coming back to the lad with a look of infinite pity and tenderness in her eyes she took his hand again placing her other fair hand on his head and saying some words to him which were so kind and said in a voice so sweet that the boy, who had never looked upon so much beauty before, felt as if the touch of a superior being or angel smote him down to the ground, and kissed the fair protecting hand as he knelt on one knee. To the very last hour of his life, Esmond remembered the lady as she then spoke and looked, the rings on her fair hands, the very scent of her robe, the beam of her eyes lighting up with surprise and kindness, her lips blooming in a smile the sun making golden halo round her hair. As the boy was yet in this attitude of humility, enters behind him a portly gentleman, with a little girl of four years old in his hand. The gentleman burst into a great laugh at the lady and her adorer, with his little queer figure, his sallow face and long black hair. The lady blushed, and seemed to deprecate his ridicule by a look of appeal to her husband, for it was my lord viscount who now arrived, and whom the lad knew, having once before seen him in the late lord's lifetime. So this is the little priest, says my lord, looking down at the lad. Welcome, kinsman. He is saying his prayers to mamma, says the little girl, who came up to her papa's knees, and my lord burst out into another great laugh at this, and kinsman Henry looked very silly. He invented a half-dozen of speeches in reply, but that was months afterwards, when he thought of this adventure, as it was, He had never a word in answer. Le pauvre enfant, il n'a que nous, says the lady, looking to her lord, and the boy who understood her, though doubtless she thought otherwise, thanked her with all his heart for her kind speech. And he shan't want for friends here, says my lord in a kind voice. Shall he, little Trix? The little girl, whose name was Beatrix, and whom her papa called by this diminutive, looked at Henry Esmond solemnly with a pair of large eyes, and then a smile shone over her face, which was as beautiful as that of a cherub, and she came up and put out her little hand to him. A keen and delightful pang of gratitude, happiness, affection, filled the orphan child's heart, as he received from the protectors, whom heaven had sent to him, these touching words and tokens of friendliness and kindness. But an hour since, he had felt quite alone in the world, when he heard the great peals of bells from Castlewood Church ringing that morning to welcome the arrival of the new lady and lord, it had rung only terror and anxiety to him, for he knew not how the new owners would deal with him, and those to whom he formerly looked for protection were forgotten or dead. Pride and doubt, too, had kept him within doors, when the vicar and the people of the village and the servants of the house had gone out to welcome my lord Castlewood, for Henry Esmond was no servant, though a dependent, no relative, though he bore the name and inherited the blood of the house, and in the midst of the noise and acclamations attending the arrival of the new lord, for whom, you may be sure, a feast was got ready, the guns were fired, and tenants and domestics who when his carriage approached and rolled into the courtyard of the hall. No one ever took any notice of young Henry Esmond, who sat unobserved and alone in the book-room, until the afternoon of that day, when his new friends found him. When my lord and lady were going away thence, the little girl, still holding her kinsman by the hand, bade him to come too. Thou wilt always forsake an old friend for a new one, Trix, says her father to her good-naturedly, and went into the gallery giving an arm to his lady. They passed thence through the music-gallery, long since dismantled, and Queen Elizabeth's rooms, in the clock-tower, and out into the terrace, where was a fine prospect of sunset and the great darkling woods with a cloud of rooks returning, and the plain and river with Castlewood village beyond, and purple hills beautiful to look at, and the little heir of Castlewood, was already here on the terrace in his nurse's arms, from whom he ran across the grass instantly He perceived his mother, and came to her. "'If thou canst not be happy here,' says my lord, looking round at the scene, "'thou art hard to please, Rachel.' "'I am happy where you are,' she said, but we were happiest of all at Walcot Forest. Then my lord began to describe what was before them to his wife, and what indeed little Harry knew better than he. viz., the history of the house? How by yonder gate the page ran away with the heiress of Castlewood, by which the estate came into the present family? How the roundheads attacked the clock-tower, which my lord's father was slain in defending? I was but two years old then, says he. But take forty-six from ninety, and how old shall I be, kinsman Harry? Thirty, says his wife, with a laugh. A great deal too old for you, Rachel, answers my lord, looking fondly down at her. Indeed, she seemed to be a girl, and was at that time scarce twenty years old. You know, Frank, I will do anything to please you, says she, and I promise you I will grow older every day. You mustn't call Papa Frank you must call papa my lord now says miss beatrix with a toss of her little head at which the mother smiled and the good-natured father laughed and the little trotting boy laughed not knowing why but because he was happy no doubt as every one seemed to be there how those trivial incidents and words the landscape and sunshine and a group of people smiling and talking remained fixed on the memory as the sun was setting the little heir was sent in the arms of his nurse to bed whither he went howling but little tricks was promised to it th- to supper that night. And you will come too, kinsman, won't you? She said. Harry Esmond blushed. Uh, I, I have supper with Mrs. Worksop, says he. Darn it, says my lord. Thou shalt sup with us, Harry, tonight. Shan't refuse a lady, shall he, tricks? And they all wondered at Harry's performance as a trencherman, in which character the poor boy acquitted himself very remarkably, for the truth is, he had had no dinner nobody thinking of him in the bustle which the house was in during the preparations antecedent to the new lord's arrival no dinner poor dear child says my lady heaping up his plate with meat and my lord filling a bumper for him bade him call a health on which master harry crying the king tossed off the wine my lord was ready to drink that and most other toasts indeed only two ready he would not hear of dr Tusher, the vicar of castlewood who came to supper going away when the sweetmeats were brought. He had not had a chaplain long enough, he said, to be tired of him, so his reverence kept my lord company for some hours over a pipe and a punch-bowl, and went away home with a rather reeling gait, and declared a dozen of times that his lordship's affability surpassed every kindness he had ever had from his lordship's gracious family. As for young Esmond, when he got to his little chamber— it was with a heart full of surprise and gratitude towards the new friends whom this happy day had brought him. He was up and watching long before the house was astir, longing to see that fair lady and her children, that kind protector and patron, and only fearful lest the welcome of the past night should in any way be withdrawn or altered. But presently little Beatrix came out into the garden, and her mother followed, who greeted Harry as kindly as before, He told her at greater length the histories of the house, which he had been taught in the old lord's time, and to which she listened with great interest, and then he told her, with respect to the night before, that he understood French, and thanked her for her protection. "'Do you?' says she with a blush. "'Then, sir, you shall teach me and Beatrix.' And she asked him many more questions regarding himself, which had best be told more fully and explicitly than in those brief replies." Which the lad made to his mistress questions. End of Book One, Chapter One. Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland.